Bokotov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad that you're with me here. Running a few minutes behind. Apologize for that. Time just kind of slipped by for a second. I would yeah, looked at the clock. It was 9:25. Looked at it again. It's 9:30. So anyway, sorry, sorry about that. Glad that you're with me this morning. And hope you're already off to a brilliant and uh, glorious and wonderful prep day. This is the sixth and seventh reading of the uh, Parasha Metzora. We're coming to a conclusion of Metzora and uh, getting ready for the wonderful uh, day of uh, Shabbat. And this Shabbat, again, is a special Shabbat. This is Shabbat Hagadol. The Shabbat, which back in the original uh, Pesach was the 10th of Nisan, it was the day in which we would select, personally select our lamb and prepare that lamb. Because the lamb that we uh, sacrificed for Pesach, for our freedom, had to be personal to us, had to be uh, a lamb that we, we um, you know, observed that we, we watched for four days and tested it to make sure that it was going to be a righteous, uh, holy lamb. This is, why, by the way, why Mashiach was taken to the temple when he, when, or went to the temple, rather, when he came into the uh, holy city. He was there for four days, doing what? Being questioned by uh, all the people that uh, knew the law and so on. And um, as a result of that, we were he was found to be spotless, a spotless lamb. We had to make it personal. You have to make it personal. But anyway, um, we are going to be on page 631. Uh, for the Sephardic Lapidniks out there. We are going to be in chapter 15. Um, that is page 631 for you Ashkenazi, uh, Americanos out there. That's going to be in the art school Humash chapter 15. And we are going to be in uh, verse 16 to the end of the, to the end of this, um, portion. Let's read. And, uh, once again, dealing with some adult topics here. So, um, you know, just be aware this is, uh, rated PG 13. For mature audiences, Baruch Hashem. A man from whom there is a discharge of semen shall immerse his entire flesh in the water and remain contaminated until evening. Any garment or anything of leather upon which there shall be semen shall be immersed in the water and remain contaminated until the evening. Verse 18. A woman with whom a man will have carnal relations shall immerse themselves in the water and remain contaminated until evening. This, I just want to pause here. This is a classic example of what I was talking about yesterday when uh, just a straight reading of the text could be misunderstood. So there are uh, anti-Semitic videos out there and, and their intention is to, is to slander, besmirch Jews and Judaism. And they say foolish things like... Uh, they point out to uh, instances in the Talmud where it says, for instance, in Kedushim, or Ketuvot, Slika, Ketuvot 11b, I think it is, where it says, if a man shall have sexual relations with a, a, a girl, a, a little girl who's three years old or whatever, 
and they read that and go, oh my gosh, Jews are pedophiles. Because it says, if a man should have sexual relations with a three-year-old girl. And of course, they don't know anything. All they did is they watched a YouTube video and, and now they hate Jews. Um, and so, if, in the context though, what that is talking about, the tractate is Ketubot, which is talking about the Ketuva of a marriage, um, uh, a married couple. And so the question of that that is all about is the question of uh, a, a virgin is going to have a higher ketuvah value, if you will, in, in a marriage situation. So the question is, what if a little girl was sexually abused when she was a little girl? Does that mean she's not a virgin? And the answer the rabbis give, because the rabbis um, you know, had a lot of compassion and whatever, the, the, the answer is, uh, yes, she's still a virgin if she was sexually abused. That's the short answer. But if you read it, it says, if a man should have relationship, blah, blah, blah. And so people read that and go, oh my gosh, it's, 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 they're saying it's okay. That's not what they're saying. Just like it says here, a, man, a woman with whom a man will have carnal relations. Somebody could read that and say, oh, so, you, so Jews believe in uh, just a man can have carnal relations with any woman. No. That carnal relationship is is limited exclusively to the marriage relationship. This is talking about a man who has carnal relations with a woman, but it's in the context of marriage. You understand what I'm saying? So you have to read it. This is why you have to study Judaism, Talmudic literature, whatever, in context. It has to be in the context of what we're talking about. And this is in the context of marriage. Okay? So just want to point that out to spare, well, you might, yourself, might have some anti-Semitic uh, parts of your uh, soul that need to be dealt with, but then again, you're probably going to have friends that have those same questions, and now you know, and as they used to say at the end of every G.I. Joe cartoon when I was a little kid, and knowing is half the battle. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Do you remember that? Okay. A woman with whom a man will have carnal relationship shall immerse themselves in water and remain contaminated until evening. When a woman has discharged her discharge from her flesh, being blood, she shall be in her state of separation for a seven-day period, and anyone who touches her shall remain contaminated until evening. Anything upon which she may recline during her state of separation shall become contaminated, and anything upon which she sits shall become contaminated. Anyone who touches her bedding shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in the water, and he remains contaminated until evening, and anyone who touches any utensil upon which she will sit shall immerse his garments and, and, and immerse himself in the water, and he remains contaminated till evening. Or, if someone is upon the bedding or the utensil upon which she is sitting, when he touches it, he becomes contaminated until evening. If a man lies with her, then her state of separation will be upon him, and he shall become contaminated for a seven-day period. Any bedding upon which he may recline, shall become contaminated. If a woman's blood flow for many days outside her period of separation, for if she has a flow after her separation, all the days of a con contaminated flow shall be like the days of a separation. She is contaminated. Any bedding upon which she may lie throughout the days of her flow shall be to her like the bedding of her state of separation. Any vessel upon which she may sit shall be contaminated. Like the contamination of her state of separation, Anyone who touches them shall become contaminated, and he shall immerse his garments and immerse himself in the water and remain contaminated until evening. If she seizes her flow, she must count seven days for herself, and afterwards she may be purified. Verse 29. On the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves, two young doves, and she shall bring them to the Kohen, 
to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the Kohen shall make one a sin offering and one an elevation offering. The Kohen shall provide atonement for her before Hashem for her contaminated flow. She shall separate the children, uh, you shall separate the children of Israel from their contamination, and they shall not die as a result of the contamination if they contaminate my tabernacle that is among them. <clears throat> so ultimately, this contamination ultimately goes all the way back to the tabernacle. Um, so when we're dealing with contamination issues and purity, we're talking about the ability to partake in the service of the tabernacle. That, that The synagogue is not the tabernacle. We're talking here about the base of Mikdash in Yerushalayim, which presently does not exist on earth anyway. It exists in Shemayim. And may it be uh, found to descend from heaven soon in our day. Amen. Verse 32. This is the law of the man with a discharge and from whom there is a seminal discharge through which he becomes contaminated and concerning a woman who suffers through her separation and concerning a person who has his flow, whether male or female, and concerning a man who lies with a contaminated woman. That's the end of the 6th and 7th reading of the Aliyah, so now we're going to get to the insights. I want to share something that I didn't get to yesterday that is, I think, an, just uh, a couple of important points here. Probably the most important point I should just make in general is that Judaism does not view sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, obviously, in the confines of marriage. Again, I just want to emphasize that Sexual uh, intimacy outside the confines of marriage is strictly prohibited. As many of you know, Judaism uh, has the practice of Shomer Nagia, whereby we're not even permitted to touch someone of the opposite sex who is not our wife, our daughters, our mothers, what have you. And that includes even handshaking. We're not supposed to do that. Now, Now, having said that, you know, there's ways in which you can avoid shaking hands with the opposite sex. Somebody outside the community doesn't really realize our customs. But I'm of the personal opinion that, you know, it's never good to embarrass someone. So if you feel like you're going to really embarrass somebody, um, that's never, that's probably not good. But anyway, that goes without saying. We can talk about techniques and ways to... Uh, uh, to avoid that at some other time, because it's it's a it's a it's a culture custom. People extend their hand to each other just as a matter of habit when they're meeting. But I digress. Let me just back up and say that we're not even permitted to do that, much less have carnal relations. If you're not allowed to touch the opposite sex, obvious outside of marriage, then obviously you're not allowed to have sexual intimacy, right? That you get that right? Okay, good. I know, you're intelligent. I just want to make sure that I was clear. So, Judaism does not view sexual intimacy as evil or wicked or necessary evil, as does some other religious faiths, you know, that, that promote abstinence, for instance, for their leaders or what have you. I had a couple many, many years ago, many, many years ago, <clears throat> came from another faith, and... Um, started to attend, started to get some light and holiness, and it's just wonderful. And and uh, they had been keeping the Shabbat to the, to the extent that they knew anything about it. But we had this conversation, just not mean them directly, but just as a, as a shul one day. And they came to me privately and for clarification because 
they viewed, because of their past religious experience, they viewed sexual intimacy as something dirty and carnal. And as a result, they were fasting from it on Shabbat. When the Holy Sabbath came, they thought, you know, we need to be in state of purity. So they purposely were abstaining from that act. This is a married couple, you know, and they were abstaining from intimacy during the Shabbat or during Yom Tov because they felt like, you know, it's, you know, we shouldn't do it. It's dirty, evil. And turns out Judaism has the exact opposite view. It's, it's whole in the confines of marriage. It's holy, natural, and pure. And it's like a glass of wine. It's like a joy, joyful, you know? So it's considered a mitzvah to engage in that activity on Shabbat and Yom Tov. The only uh, Yom Tov that's not permitted is, I'll give you three guesses. Oh, you got it right the first time. Yom Kippur, that is correct. Um, so there, that just gives kind of the Jewish, the, the Jewish view. So anyway, I just want to share a few insights here from the, uh, the Kehot Humash. The first insight here has to do with just the concept of original sin. Uh, this is somewhat of an aside, but it says, this is from Shabbat 55b from the Talmud. It says, the sages therefore inform us that even the select few who obtain the greatest spiritual refinement possible in the present order of creation, notice words mean things. I've said that before, I think. Um, in the present order of creation, still had to die. Why? For no other reason, they write, than the bite of the primordial snake. This goes back to the argument that you, if you believe in a Messiah who's not divine, you have a major problem. And that is that any human being who's just, who's not divine, they're just human, they're a Messiah, they are in the same boat we are. Everybody dies, no matter how righteous. You can, it is possible, it is absolutely possible to live the entire Torah perfectly. Yes, yes, my friends, it is. Because if it wasn't, God would be completely unjust in punishing us for not keeping it. You understand that reality? A law can only be just if you can keep it. So if you, for instance, couldn't help yourself from robbing banks, it would be it would be uh, un, unlawful for the state to punish you for it if it was something you couldn't help do. In other words, the, the state can't pass a law, hey, you can't breathe. You know, it's against the law to breathe because we can't help but breathe, right? So therefore, if they punish us for breathing, then obviously that's unjust, okay? So it is possible. However, you're still going to die. Why? Because of the original sin of Adam and the primordial snake. That's the point I want to make. The Mashiach has to be born in such a way that he's outside that reality. And the only way to make that happen is by being born of a virgin. Now it becomes the question, why that? Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. So it says, I just want to read the, the thoughts here and we'll comment on them as we go. So it says, objectifying another human being can thus be seen as the ultimate and archetypal sin. Objectifying means degrading them, considering, considering them as just some type of object of pleasure or of your own personal use. This is what happens when people get involved in pornography and things of that, that nature. 
So it says the epitome of the evil that opposes the world's progress towards redemption. So objectifying another human being that they're 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 your personal toy or whatever is the is is the ultimate archetypal sin and it epitomizes what prevents us from being redeemed. So it says in this context we can understand the critical importance of the Torah attaches to how we harness our carnal desires. There is no human activity that can produce pleasure comparable to that produced by carnal intimacy. It is therefore paramount that we express this pleasure as far as possible only in the course of making another person the subject of the experience. That means, in the Jewish mind, by striving to grant them pleasure, which actually is the husband's ultimate responsibility, which flows completely contrary to uh, modern culture thought. The, the um, responsibility of pleasure in a physical relationship between a man and a woman, again, married, is the husband. It's his responsibility. So it says here, rather than an objectifying them, that is by using them as a means to derive pleasure for ourselves. So the man and woman entering into that act should have in mind the satisfaction of their, their spouse and not themselves. That's the ultimate goal. So it says, therefore, the Torah insists that the only permitted form of seminal omission is that in which a husband inseminates his wife. Again, PG-13 here, apologize for, um, well, it's his Torah, all right? So what is there to apologize for? Anyway, and it says, and even then he is required to focus on her pleasure rather than his own. Any other type of seminal omission serves to objectify womankind in the man's perspective, and is therefore antithetical to the essence of redemption and contributes to the prolongation of exile. So, as I said in my opening, people blaspheme, or not blaspheme, but they they um, slander Judaism by saying that you know Judaism believes in pedophilia or whatever. The exact opposite is true. But even more so, Judaism doesn't even believe that a man is allowed to use his wife for pleasure. He can derive pleasure from her. That's a different subject. But you understand, even on a... <clears throat> listen, this is the ideal that supposedly secular humanism wants. It's found in Torah. But they want it outside of God, which you can't have that. Which is why they'll never achieve it. So inside God's kingdom, he teaches the husband and the wife, vice versa, that, listen, you're not allowed to use them for your personal pleasure. You have to desire to give pleasure. So it says, a man is therefore rendered ritually defiled by any omission from his procreative organ that results from carnal desire. Okay? So this next verse, this next, not verse, but this next statement I'm about to read explains why the virgin birth was required. And the sages talk about this fact. It says, even permitted seminal omission renders a husband ritual defiled. Why? Well, since, as just stated, it is impossible not to experience at least to some 
degree, pleasure and marital relationships. To put it in another way, the sages have said before that any act of intimacy between a husband and wife, at least on some level, will include uh, self-gratification. Even if you have in your mind, and, and most married couples do, they have in their mind the desire to bring pleasure to their spouse, as is that's the holy intention that one should have, that even if that is the case, there still exists in that act a, an element to one degree or another of self-gratification. And the sages point out that is the tainting, if I can use that word, of this, this, the uh, poison of the primordial serpent. So therefore, had Miriam and Yosef the parents of Mashiach on earth anyway, had they engaged, as some people purport, they say, oh, it wasn't a virgin birth, that he actually, uh, they had intimacy and blah, blah. Of course, that's completely, people who believe in the Mashiach believe this, and yet that's completely contrary to what the gospel says. So I don't understand that, but that's a whole nother issue. Um, that's the ultimate MSU right there. That's the ultimate making stuff up. But, but, had they done that, what they don't understand is, had they done that, they would have imparted, it's impossible not to, the poison of the serpent of Ganadin. And therefore, rendered the Mashiach, Hasve Shlom, incapable of redeeming us. Which is why the virgin birth had to happen. It had to, because it's the only way to avoid the poison of the primordial serpent. It's the only way. So that's why. Now, going to this Aliyah, first off the bat, we have in verse 18, it says, and remained contaminated until evening. So as the it says the contamination of Shikvat Zerah, that is semen, is passed to the woman at the level of Av Ha Tumah, the primary source of Tumah, even though this contact is etern- internal. It also spreads to every garment and skin with which the semen comes into contact. However, and this is such a wonderful insight. However, Despite the seriousness of this contamination. So ladies, don't feel bad. When you are in the state of Nida, it's considered a serious contamination on a spiritual level. Not, it's not, doesn't mean you're dirty or sinful. But you should just know, as I said yesterday, I'm, I'd, I'd love the equal, the equal opportunity employerness of God. Men too go through this as well. It's, it's, it's not like women are all by themselves. But anyway, I digress. It says, however, despite the seriousness of this contamination, the, ba- the Baal Kari, that is the man who's had the emission, is allowed to recite his prayers and study the Holy Torah. For as Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra declared, listen to this, the words of the Torah are not susceptible to contamination, Berakot 22a, Torah is like fire, according to Jeremiah 23, 29, 
which is also unaffected by Tuma. The divine word is of such purity that it is inaccessible to any contamination and any attempt to tamper with it or falsify it. It remains pure for all eternity. This, my friends, is why the woman with the issue of Zav, with the issue of blood, sought to touch, as it were, the Messiah, and it's why she was made pure. And it's why she didn't contaminate him, because you cannot contaminate the word of God. Now, at the same time, it is not permitted to touch the parchment of the Torah scroll with, uh, without, w- with your bare hands. So she didn't actually touch him. She reached out to touch the tzitzit of his garment, which represented the word of God. So she touched, as it were, the covering of the to- of the Holy Torah scroll, if you will, and as a result, fire went from him, so to speak, and made her whole. Now, this is why a woman in her time of Nidah, some women refrain from touching the, the, the Torah scroll when it comes around in the synagogue. That's fine if they want to do that as an act of... Uh, um, you know, honor or what have you, but it's not necessary to withhold. Why? Because you touching that Torah cannot make that Torah scroll impure. It imparts purity. Why? Because the word of God imparts impurity. This is also proof. This whole thing I just mentioned, but the one, the, the fact that the holy word cannot be contaminated, the fact that the woman with the Zav touched him, and so on, is proof of the Messiah's divinity. Why? Because any other man, had he just been a man, the minute she touched him would have made him impure. Did you catch that? This is proof that he's divine. Because had he been just a man, her touching him would have made him impure and would have impure and would have required him to go to the mikvah and all those kinds of things. And, but in, and because she's a Zav, not a, she wasn't a Nida, she was a Zav, would have required him to offer some sacrifices as well. But that's not what happened. He turned to her and said, your faith has made you whole. He had no contamination whatsoever. Why? Because he's the divine holy Torah. That's why. That's why. It's the only answer. So, just to give another insight here, men are like the sun, women are like the moon. So the woman is um, impure according to scriptures for seven days. Now the sages combine the rules of the Nida and the Zav together because it becomes quite impossible, not impossible, but difficult to tell the difference between the two. And so the sages to be on the safe side kind of combine the laws for the two. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. So it says seven days. It says the Kabbalists compare the duality of the sexes to the heavenly bodies. The sun, the source of all energy, unchanging in its radiant power, represents the male. As it says in Psalm 19.6, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The moon, on the other hand, is subject to a monthly cycle of waxing and waning and represents the female principle. During this waning period, the moon seems to move away from its partner, only to return and come back to him again. So it is that the woman's monthly cycles or periods are inscribed in the laws of creation. Um, I think there's a scientific thing too. 
and by the way, I should say that women that have questions about Nida and the laws of Nida and all those kinds of things, please direct those to the Rebetzin. She is the go-to uh, person for those questions. Um, but I do think it's, we've always said, and sages have always said that the, the woman is likened to the moon, which is why Rosh Hodesh is a, um, uh, is a festival directly for women, specifically for women. Um, but there, I think there's something scientific too about, uh, that a woman who's born, when she's born, whatever moon cycle that she is, happens to be born under, the moon was waxing or waning at the time, uh, corresponds to her monthly cycle as she becomes a um, an adult, and I find that fascinating. I understand that to be. I read that in a in a, in a uh, some type of medical article once, and um, if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But I, under, I understood that to be the, the fact, and I think that's fascinating. So, a man and woman who are married, when the woman is going to um, going through this this time. The she's to be separated from her husband. Obviously, no intimate intimate contact, but that would include um, no touching, no hugging, no kissing. A uh, lot of uh, men and women, Jewish men and women, will sleep during those days in separate bedrooms. Uh, the man will sleep on the couch or whatever, or wherever he happens to sleep, which I believe is a wonderful practice. Uh, because in our society we have lost the um, we've lost the sensitivity of touch because we're shaking everybody's hand and everybody's hugging everybody, we've lost that sensitivity of touch and people wonder well what's so big what's the big deal about shaking uh, the hand of the opposite sex or whatever what's the big deal about that? Well, just think back to when your boyfriend held your hand for the first time. How'd that make you feel? So there you go. It says here <clears throat> or your husband. Your husband who held your hand for the first time, right? Um, so it says here, from a psychological perspective, one can say that relations between husband and wife are regulated by religious law in order to guard against the great dangers that threaten con conjugal love, that is, excess and over-familiarity. This law, founded on the natural biological law of feminal, feminine men's, female slika, menstruation, stipulates a 12-day period each month during which all intimate relationship between a husband and wife are forbidden. This period begins with the onset of menstruation and ends with the wife immersing herself in a mikvah. Only after that is she permitted to her husband. In effect, the five-day menstrual period is prolonged by an additional seven days called the days of purity. At the end of the 12 days of abstinence, the wife reappears to her husband. Reappears, you know, like... so. I, as soon as I said red reappears in Rabbi Monk's comments here, I thought, you know, this is like the return of Mashiach. So every month, a husband and wife, when she reappears to him after the mikvah, they get to reenact, as it were, or enact the second coming of the Mashiach. Selah on that for a moment. So it says her desirability to him is enhanced by waiting. As Rebusin is fond of saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? So it says in the Talmud, Rabbi Mir remarks that a husband may grow used to his wife and become tired of her. 
By delaying her return to him for an additional seven days, she becomes dear to him as on their wedding day. This is found in Nida 31b. So every, every month you get a honeymoon. It's very healthy, actually. It says the 12-day wait might seem quite long to some. However, in the relationship between husband and wife, it establishes a wonderful rhythm that harmonizes exactly with two necessities. That is, to avoid the excess of unrestrained passion, and to prevent the coldness of overfamiliarity, it thereby satisfies the most intimate bodily and psychological need of both man and woman. Now, one more insight I want to read here because this is I found fascinating. When it talks about in verse twenty-eight that she must count off for herself seven days, it it says this counting should be done la that is to herself alone, and her husband will trust her as is confirmed in the Mishnah, Ketubot 72a. So in other words, the wife counts her days, and the, the husband just says, I trust you, honey, if you say that you've counted, you've counted. So, you know, it's it's all all that. So it says here, Or Hahayim, regarding the prohibition of Hamits on Passover, where again the wife is fully trusted. In other words, there's a connection here to getting rid of the Nada and getting rid of the Hamits that both of those instances are, are given over to the wife's responsibility. She's responsible for counting the seven days, and she's also responsible for saying to her husband, all the hamans is out of the house, and the husband trusts her. That's her mitzvah. It's her. Uh, it's up to her. And I just think that's beautiful. I just thought I'd want to share that because there's a connection between Pesach, freedom, and the Nida and family purity. I just think it's wonderful. End of our Aliyah today. Listen, I want you to have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing prep day. We're going to see everybody in the shul for Shabbat Hagadol. It's going to be rainy tomorrow here in Texas. But listen, do not let that prevent you from coming, okay? Uh, let's enjoy the rain. Rain is a blessing. So um, be here tomorrow. If you're watching online from uh, all over the country and all over the world, then we welcome you. We want to see you there as well. And may everybody be richly blessed. Shalom, shalom. Shabbat shalom. And have a great, wonderful, and amazing day.